Mark. I guess I should catch up with you because you're there and I'm not there yet. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 53, and uh, we're going to come down toward the end of this passage of Scripture in, the, in chapter 14, and then chapter 15 is all about the crucifixion, and uh, we walk through those next two chapters pretty quickly as we look into Easter coming up on us very quickly as well. Uh, next week, Pastor Caleb will be preaching for us in both services, and uh, he'll be looking at uh, the Lord, uh, the betrayal of Peter and how that all ties in together, and we'll see just a little piece of that this morning as well, and so you'll be praying for him as well. My wife and I will be flying out, um, our family, our whole family is going to fly out tomorrow morning, and we're going to go down to um, uh, Atlanta. We'll drive down and visit my folks for a couple of days and get to visit with them, and then we'll be back on Saturday. We'll be back here with you on Sunday, and so we're going to be here with you next Sunday as we finish out our missions emphasis, uh, but looking forward to a, a good time to be able to visit with them uh, for a few days and maybe see a little sunshine. And so we're excited about that as well. And uh, so you pray for us as we travel. If you found your place there in Mark 14, I will ask you to stand if you can in honor of the Word of God. And we'll read this aloud together, beginning in verse number 53 down through verse number 65. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and elders and scribes. And Peter followed him afar off even into the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Chief priests and the count, all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witnesses agreed not together. There arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands, but neither so did their witnesses agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it that these witness, which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witness it? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? They all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and buffet him and say unto him, Prophesy. And the servant did strike him with the palm of their hands. Would you add, would you pray with us this morning? Father, we think of this passage of Scripture, and our mind has to be stirred, our hearts has to be convicted as we consider the suffering of our Lord, or as we consider this trial that has unfolded. Father, we ask you to have our minds tuned into what the text is saying. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work in us and through us this morning that only you can do. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey. And we'll praise you for this, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You can be seated there. We have walked through the journey uh, to the cross now for several weeks. And this started way back when we asked the question, who is Jesus? And we wanted to know the answer to that. And it's important to remember that in the early days of when, when the book would have been written, 
that a Jewish person who heard the name Jesus would not have connected Jesus to Messiah or Christ. It would not have been a direct connection. It was a matter of fact, they would have thought of him as Jesus the carpenter. Is not this Joseph's son? And that would have been their statements. They did not see him. And you and I, we have a very hard time, having read this so many times, of disconnecting that and getting our minds back where they were when this was first being given. And so we culminate that first section of Mark in chapter number 8, where Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered rightly, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we now know who Jesus is, and we see that unfolded. And then the question then is, what is the mission of the Messiah? What did the Messiah come to do? Was he coming to be a ruling king? Uh, was he coming to throw out Rome and to take over the throne of David now? And of course, that passage culminates with Jesus saying, he came not to serve, but to uh, be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he came as the suffering servant. He came as the one who would die for the sins of the world. And so that's exactly what Christ came to do. And now we come on this journey to the cross. And we are getting to this place now where our Lord is standing right before the cross. Just hours before they will take him and beat him with a cat of nine tails. Just hours before they will pierce his hands with stakes and hang him on a cross. And just hours uh, before they will lay him in a tomb and just days prior to when he comes out of the grave victorious. And so this is where we stand at this hour. And it's interesting to look at the different people and their response in this text. Some in this text have remained silent. They're saying nothing. Others forsake him and flee. Some are following at a distance. Some have betrayed Christ and sold him into the hands of sinful men. The 12, or the 11 rather, will deny Christ and forsake him. Peter will deny him three times. There are those here that are mocking him. There are some that are, being, that are lying about him. But in this whole passage, there's only one person who stands on truth and for truth the entire time. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He never wavers throughout this text. And so we move then to the declaration of the ages open with three questions that I want you to consider this morning, and we know the answers to these questions, and I think we could probably just go ahead and fill them in at the beginning, but I, I want you to ask these questions of yourself, and then we'll think on them when we come to the end of the text as well. These questions are going to, they're going to start with the most important question, and they're going to go down in decreased importance, but they will increase in personal application. So the most important question to the least important question, to the greatest personal application at the bottom. And here's the questions. Who is Jesus? You have to answer that question. If Jesus is just a good teacher or a good prophet or a good man, then there is no redemption. We have to find another means of redemption. And there is no other salvation other th than through him. So who is Jesus? Next question I want you to ask yourself this morning, did Jesus rest in the plan of his father? Was he okay with that? Was he not just okay with it, was he resting in the plan of the father? And here's the personal application. Can we rest in the work of Christ and in the will of God? Can we rest in the work of Christ 
and the will of God. Now let's look at our text. Two Sundays ago, the Lord was in the garden. He was praying. He, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Mine hour has come. Let's go and face those accusers. And then last Sunday, we see Judas betraying the Lord, Jesus demonstrating power. Peter cuts off an ear. All forsake him. And I, I kind of picture we go from Sunday to Sunday, and it's, it's almost like you got to have a recap of, you know, last time on the A-team. You remember watching the A-team when you were kids? And you got to get an idea of what happened last week, all right? And you get the picture last week and what happened the week before, and here we are now, and we bring you up to speed as to where we are. And so uh, here we are at this scene. The Lord has been taken into custody. He's being led away to this trial. And verse 53 opens, and we find the Lord forsaken and alone. No one stands with him here. He's surrounded by men who have dogged his steps for three and a half years that are trying to find opportunity to crucify him. He is left alone now to tread the wine press. He is left alone to face this hour, to drink this cup. Now, the scripture tells us, and we put it all together, we see there are actually two Jewish trials prior to being taken to Pilate. There's an illegal trial at night, and there's a formality the next morning. Mark gives very little attention to the second trial. As a matter of fact, he gives one verse to it in chapter 15 and 1. And we just kind of move off. It's almost as if the decision is made at this evening trial of what they're going to do. The next morning is just a rubber stamping of what they had already decided. And so we're moving through this passage of Scripture now, and we find the Lord left alone. And so now we see an illegal trial. Illegal. Caiaphas, his palace, is the high priest. Uh, there's an outer court that would surround this house, and the house would sit up on a parapet kind of thing above, and, and we see them assembling, the Bible says in verse 53, literally means to flock together. They come flocking together, and no, matter, no, no, no doubt they had arrested the Lord, and then the messengers were sent. We have him in custody, and now all of these from the Sanhedrin are coming every which way, and they're gathering together for this trial, and there's a big stir around this house now. There's many people that have gathered here, and they've gathered in assembly in this room. These men have dogged the steps of the Lord for three and a half years, and now they have him in their grasp, and they don't want to miss this opportunity. We can finally be rid of this rabbi that's caused so much trouble. This is an illegal trial, as I said. The earmarks of Jew Jewish jurisprudence are that it would be a public trial, that there would be a right to defense, and there is a solid evidence given. And here in this illegal trial, it's a secret trial, it's at night, there is no defense given for the Lord, and there's no evidence that is brought forward against him. There's no evidence of blasphemy. And see, and even when they accuse him of blasphemy, it's only blasphemy if it's not true. Because if he is Christ, if he is the Lord of creation, then what he is saying is not blasphemy, it's truth. And so here there's no evidence of blasphemy, and so they have this, this illegal trial unfolding. I want you to see in just a little clip here a, a distant disciple. The trial is assembling, and next week Pastor Caleb will take on Peter's betrayal, but 
I kind of feel like the, 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 the scenes kind of, we go over here and we see the trial unfolding and then we cut away and here comes Peter walking in and then we're going to cut back to the trial in a second and we'll see the trial in its window and see just for a moment, let's look at Peter. In verse number 54, and Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. It's almost as if like you need to know this for later. Because here's Peter, he's walking at a distance. And the, the, the phrase here, even into, that little phrase implies for us that each step is taken cautiously, yet with more courage every step. It's kind of like he's kind of inching his way in, and he follows at a distance, and then he gets closer to where uh, the, the trial is taking place, and I kind of picture Peter kind of just stepping over to the gate and looking in and kind of slipping inside the gate and taking another step, and finally he's kind of standing there with the servants, warming himself by the fire, maybe having his coat collar turned up a little bit, maybe, maybe he had his mask on. Um, he didn't want to be seen, he didn't want to be recognized, he wanted to kind of inch his way in. And not be noticed. I mean, we used to do that when I was a kid, and we were supposed to be in bed, but we hadn't been given the message to go to bed yet, you know, and we were just kind of inching our way into the living room where mom and dad were watching TV, and we would kind of sit behind the couch to where we could lean around the couch and watch the TV, but we didn't want mom and dad to really know we were there, you know, and then it was always the little brother or sister that would rat you out, you know, and they would ask something. I'm like, shh, don't tell anybody we're here, you know. And Peter's kind of inched his way in by the fire. And he's sitting there warming himself by the fire. Peter's outright denial will come in the text after this one. And John 18 tells us that the apostle John uh, is the one that gained them both access for him and Peter to get into this palace area. And they would have been in the servants area surrounding the house. Peter eases in until he's warming himself by the fire and the scene cuts back to the trial that is already in progress. And so we see a corrupt prosecution taking place. Look, if you would, in verse number 55, and the chief priests and all the councils sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death. That's not how you're supposed to seek for witnesses. You're not trying to find people who will condemn somebody to death. You're trying to find witnesses who will speak the truth. But yet they have a modus already that they want to find witnesses that would put him to death. And so their motive behind this is wrong. This group of Sanhedrin men, 71 members, all prominent leaders with religious and political ties, they know the law and yet they purposely ignore the law and attempt to railroad the Lord in an illegal trial. They're seeking for witnesses to agree. They need two witnesses uh, and that's what they're seeking for. If they can get two witnesses to agree that he's done something wrong, then they can have him executed. And they're looking for these two witnesses to say, yes, he's blasphemed, or yes, he's denied uh, the God of our fathers. And so they're looking for these witnesses. And I heard as a young boy, I heard a, a sermon on this text, and I'm not even exactly sure who it was that preached it, but it always intrigued me the way he looked at it. He said, what would it have been like for these witnesses to be sought for? Can you imagine this group of men and maybe their servants going around the day before looking for witnesses to testify against Jesus? I kind of picture them running up to a, a lady in the street and say, excuse me, uh, have you heard of, of the Jesus of Nazareth? 
and, uh, and she says, oh, yes, me and my son, we know of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is my son here, and he's, we're from the city of Nain, and my, my, I, my son was dead, and we were carrying him out in a coffin, and Jesus stopped the procession and raised my son to life, and they would look and said, oh, you're not the witness we want. And they would have moved on, and, and then maybe they came up, and there was this other fellow uh, who has a very fair complexion, and they thought, well, maybe this man will help us out. And they asked him, and he said, oh, yeah, well, me and my ten buddies, we were lepers on the outside of the city, but Jesus healed us of our leprosy. You're not the witness we want. You know, and may, maybe they found a little short guy running around. And they said, excuse me, sir, you look like you might be favorable to Rome. Can you tell us about this Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, I'd be happy to. I heard he was coming, and I climbed up in a sycamore tree, and he went to my house. Everything's been different since I met Jesus. You're not the witness we want either. And we could go down a list of people, could we not, of all that he had touched and he had done. And I thought, man, what, a, what an image of them trying to find someone to testify against Jesus. And as they ran through looking for these witnesses, they're looking for men who would give testimony to condemn him to death. And several times they failed to find any witness to agree. And just look, if you would, the futility of this effort here. In verse number 55, the Bible tells us they found none. Verse number 56, for many bear false witness against him, but their witnesses agreed not together. Many bear false witnesses. So, and, and by the way, I have no doubt that these men were willing to pay for witnesses against him. They were struggling for anything they could. They had already paid uh, uh, Judas to betray him. And here, these men cannot find him. And so several times they've tried to do this. But then they find some. They're like, okay, I think we might have something here. There's certain arose, the Bible tells us, and there arose certain that bear false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple uh, that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And they're like, I think we have something here, because it seems that he's, he's blaspheming the temple, and he's making light of the temple, and, and if we can catch him on blaspheming against the temple, then we've got him. And what have they done, though? They, they actually have misquoted him. He didn't say, I will destroy the temple. John chapter 2 and 19 tells us, says, you will destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. He's not speaking of destroying the physical temple in that point. He's talking about this body being pulled down, and he said, you will destroy this body, but I will raise it up in three days. And he's prophesying of his resurrection that is still to come. And so they misquote him, but even in this misquoting, verse number 59, but neither so did their witnesses agree together. They couldn't get it straight. Uh, you know, you can imagine the frustration of these men. It's almost as if the hour is getting late, the witnesses have come through, we've tried to find people to accuse him, we can't seem to get anything to lay a hold on him at, and I kind of kind of picture the high priest being like, this is so frustrating we, we've got this guy, but we can't get this guy. What, what do we got to do? And, and look at the, the, the passage here. And in verse number 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answereth thou nothing? What is it with these witness against thee? It, it, it's almost as if, now let me just see if I can get you tripped up and to say something that will incriminate yourself. 
and, and he stands up, and, and it's the idea of frustration and anger and a dramatic act that he steps forward, and I kind of picture him shaking in his robes, and that's Micahism that's not in the scripture, right? Um, but I kind of picture him standing up and kind of bolstering himself a bit. He walks into the midst of them, the Bible says. An irate and baffled man stands up for effect to show himself off and to thwart his power in the moment. You know, and I, I wish I could just go pause and then walk over to the guy and say, excuse me, sir, let me unpause you while everybody else stands here and ask you a question. Do you really think that by standing up and raising your voice, you're going to intimidate a guy who can raise the dead? Do you think you're going to push him into a corner? He's the one who the wind and the seas obey? Do you think you're going to push him in a corner? He's the one who's created behemoth and he tames him. He's the one that holds the stars in his hands and he weighs the mountains and the scales. And at this very moment, he's carrying the weight of redemption on his shoulders. And you think you're going to intimidate him? Here he walks forward with this idea that he's got something. You know, I'm reminded, if we're not careful, he... He attempts here to make up for with bluster what he lacked in evidence. How many of us are guilty of when we're in the midst of an argument, we just get louder on a weak point? And that's a danger for pastors as well. We just want to get louder when we don't really have a whole lot of evidence backing up what we're saying. Here this man blusters in the moment. And what is the Lord's response? Verse 61. But he held his peace. Jesus held his peace. And answered nothing. I can only imagine that would make him even more frustrated. Why would he not answer? Well, they will not hear what they don't want to hear. And so he, because he's not getting the response he wants, he presses the question in further. All of this matters. All of this has an intricacy to it that, that I hope you don't miss this morning. He's going to ask the question and this is, the answer to this question is why the Lord is crucified. And he, here's, there's this whole culture that has been around for a long time that wants to say, well, the Lord never claimed to be Jesus. Or Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Nonsense. We see very clearly here in this text who he claims to be. He makes the claims, he, and multiple times throughout his ministry, and in different places in the gospel, he makes full-on frontal acclaims that he is the Messiah. And here, he's standing before the Sanhedrin at his public trial, and they ask him this question, art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? They ask him forthright. This has placed Jesus under oath. They tell me that the wording here tells us that it's almost like saying, you know, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help you God. He is God. They're placing him under an oath before God that he's going to tell the truth. It's like the way, the truth, and the life is being asked to declare the truth. You see, the problem is, it's not that he hasn't declared the truth. The problem is they don't want to hear the truth. The truth is what they've run from. This is, in fact, a call for self-incrimination, which is against Jewish law. It could be, if, it were, if they were asking him to lie, he could be to suborn perjury. Because they're like, if you answer the truth here, we're going to kill you. If you lie, we're going to kill you. 
They're putting him in a place where there's no room to move. Now, to answer this question, it appears to walk into their trap and to play into their hands. To remain silent is to deny who he was and who sent him. So here we see the Lord being confronted with this question. And the high priest asked him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now let's pause just for a moment. I want you to notice, if you would, the demeanor of the Lord in the midst of this. Here the Lord is unrattled, unwavered. He's not tossed about. He's not, we don't find him flustered. But contrast the demeanor of the Lord with the frantic accusers around him. Aren't you going to answer us? The high priest can't seem to control himself. The fearful apostles who have fled, the faithless followers, contrast the settledness of the Lord with our unsettledness in the storms. How many times have I rushed to him in the midst of a storm, said, wake up, Lord, don't you care that we perish? And he's not flustered. He's not rattled. Here in the midst of this hour, he is settled. He is at peace. His demeanor is the essence of peace in the midst of the storm. And so the question lingers, art thou the Christ? What does that question imply? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one that would come, that is prophesied that would come? Are you the seed of woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent? Are you the promised one of Abraham's seed? Are you the promised one that will sit upon the throne of David? Are you the promised one that would be the son of man that Daniel spoke of? Are you the promised one that would come? And he said, and are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? And here we see very clearly that they had joined in their minds that the Messiah, the promised one, would not just be a man who would come to deliver, but he would be the God-man who would come to deliver. And they asked the question, are you the Christ, the anointed one of God? Are you the son of the blessed? And he puts it to him. Will he remain silent? Or will he play into their hands? Will he hold his peace again? No. This is the reason he has come into the world. He will not miss this divine opportunity to declare the truth of who he is. John 18, 37 says, Pilate asked him this question, Thou art a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end I was born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So the question hangs in the air. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? I imagine in my mind, silence must have filled that room. I'd imagine there was a pause and a pregnant pause. And we hear the declaration of the ages, the, the declaration that gives hope to every man, woman, boy, and girl, every person who will ever know what it is to be redeemed, that hope rests on the answer that is about to be given when Jesus stands, and I believe, in very calm assurance says, I am. And he just says it boldly and clearly, and hear what he's saying, and, and, and the, the word behind this in the Greek bears it out so clearly. He is not just saying, I am one of them, but he's saying, I, me, and no other am. 
I and I alone am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. I am. And he lays it out boldly before them. And here our Lord stands before these wicked men. He's walked purposely into this hour. And we might say, now he's played into their hands. Now they, they, he's, he's kind of stepped into their trap. They've caught him into his word, his words. No, he's not playing into their plans. They have been playing his plan all along. This has been his purpose all along. Because before all of this began, it was God's purpose that his son would be sacrificed on our behalf and he would die in our place. They, they haven't trapped him. They've been working out prophecy and didn't even realize they were doing it. It was all in God's hand all along. And so we stand before these men who think they have power. But what we must see is the cross was no accident. But it was God's plan before the foundation of the world. So when you look at this hour, don't see the Lord as a suffering martyr. But see him as the obedient servant that he is. Do not see weakness robed in purple. But see the only power to save humanity from damnation on quiet, resting display. As it waits the purpose of God on display in this hour. As he stands there before these wicked men and says, I am. In this immoral trial, with justice mocked, the providence of God is marching forward unhindered by man's agenda. And these words ring throughout all of humanity's history as we move forward as he says I am I am Jesus continues though and here is the beauty and the nuance of scripture don't miss this don't miss it because our Bibles our the Word of God is a gem that you can study it and study it and study it and then turn it and be like oh, I've never seen and there's so much more to bring out of a text than we could ever bring out in an hour on a Sunday morning. And, and yet, we could do it ten times over, and there's still more there for us to glean from it. So don't miss this this morning. Jesus doesn't stop with his statement when he says, I am. But he goes forward in verse number 62. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. What is he referring to? He's referring to his ascension to the Father, and he's referring to his return in victory one day. He's saying to these men, you sit in a seat of power, but I will sit in the right hand of power before my Father, and I will return again. And he's prophesying of the fact that, guys, it ain't over. This is God's purpose, and this is God's plan, but his plan is not finished yet. And he's pointing forward to this. You see, he's coming in the clouds. This is the warning of who he is and his coming role of judge of all the earth. And that the day will come when the men who stood before him that day must stand before him and be judged by him. This is the promise that he's making. And where does he draw them from? You understand, and we all believe this, that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
But see this nuance, if you would, in the text. He quotes two Old Testament prophets. Psalms 110 and 1, he quotes David. Psalm 17, or Daniel 7:13, he quotes Daniel. Right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel's prophecy, we do not have time to unpack it. He's the son of man. He's standing there, the son of man, the with the ancient of days. And we see this beautiful picture. And by the way, Jesus' favorite reference of himself, he said, I am the son of man. He's referring to himself as the Messiah who would come and take man's place. And what do we see here? They had spent all night looking for two witnesses to agree. And Jesus says, here's your two witnesses. David and Daniel, they testify of who I am. Of course, the anger that must have flooded those men. Verse 63, we see them coming out of their seat and the high priest rent his clothes what need have we of any further witnesses? Any further witnesses? You haven't had any yet. What need have we of any further witnesses? And, and, and you've been doing things illegally all night long, so why not top it off with being illegal still? Because you have violated the law by tearing your clothes. Leviticus 21.10 forbids a high priest from doing that, and yet this man stands and wants to make a show of his brokenness. And by the way, anybody who's not truly broken on the inside has to make a show on the outside. That's the only way anybody can see it. And here this man tears his garments, and what have we of any further witnesses? Give your verdict now. Put your votes in. He's guilty of death. He's blaspheming, they said. And I remind you again, it's only blasphemy if it's not true. Because if he is the son of man, he is the son of God, then it's not blasphemy. And it's not blasphemy. They crucify him for claiming to be who he was. Verse 64, 65, they condemn him to death. Look at verse 65 and the outrage of it. And some begin to spit on him. Can you imagine the Son of God, the precious Savior of the world, with the spittle of human sinful men running down his face? The mockery and the outrage, they covered his face. They covered his face to hide their guilt. They mock him. They beat him. Prophesy, tell us who hit you. And the servants did strike him with the palm of their hand. And how does our Lord respond? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He opened not his mouth. He was as a sheep before his shearer is dumb. As a lamb to the slaughter he walked. Humble and lowly. Isaiah 53 says he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows. What a Savior. What a lowly, powerful, humble Savior. So as we come to the end of this, the Lord is condemned to death by wicked men in an illegal trial. And yet we see all of this was the very cup that his father had given him to drink. All of this was God's plan. And so 
Let's go back to our opening questions. Who is Jesus? He is God in flesh. The Savior of the world. The hope of all humanity. Did he trust the Father's plan? Yes. Did he rest in the Father's plan? Yes. So then the question sits on us this morning. Can we rest in the work of Christ and in the will of God? See, we should be able to, should we not? But too often what we do is we look at the cup that God places in our hands. And we say, oh, no, 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 I was expecting a different one. I, I, I didn't want this struggle. I, I'm going to set this one down and you can give me a different one. Well, no, Lord, I, I, I wasn't expecting to go through this. And whatever trial it is, whatever circumstance, it, and here's the thing, I think often, too, what we do is we think, well, Lord, I really want to serve you, but what am I supposed to do with this I have in front of me? Well, that cup was placed there by him. And so the trial, the tr struggles we face, relationship, family, uh, financial, work, none of that is an accident. You see, there can be and should be a quiet confidence knowing that the cup that is in our hands was given to us by the Father. And he's good. And he has purpose for us to drink that cup in this hour. And we don't always understand why the pain comes. We don't always understand why the suffering. Or even sometimes, have you ever wondered, God, why are you blessing me like you're doing? God has purpose for all of it. It's the cup he's placed in our hands. Let us drink it trusting that he's a good father and he knows what he's doing. See, we are not called to serve the Lord this morning or drink the cup. Or go through the trial out of guilt. Well, look what Jesus did for you. What are you going to do for him? I think that's it's a very menial way of addressing the cross. But I think it is faith. That God was faithful to raise his son. And he'll be faithful to raise me up in the last day. Because of what he's done. Through his son, I can face anything. Here's the thing you need to get in your minds. There's nobody on this world who can take anything away from you that is eternal. Nobody can take anything eternal away from you. And so when I begin to fear men or fear facing circumstances, what I'm really fearing is I fear losing something temporal. And I'm revealing the idolatry of my own heart. The challenges this morning is Jesus. Get it settled in your mind and heart. Declaring for who he is. See Jesus resting in the will of his Father. And then today, let us rest that our Father has willed the circumstances of life for us and he has purpose for them for his glory and for our good. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Father, thank you that you are good. And Father, the circumstances of life seldom fall out the way we think they will. Father, we do believe that, Father, you're not just in control, but, Father, you've decreed them. And, Father, we're walking in your purpose and your plan. Lord, we know, according to Ephesians, that you have 
foreordained that we should walk in them. Lord, help us to be obedient to the task at hand. Help us to walk it out for your glory. With our heads bowed and eyes.